You're listening to That'll Preach, a weekly podcast on theology and culture. I'm Brian, I'm here with Paul, and we are diving into the age-old question of how do we reconcile a good God, a good sovereign God, with the existence of evil in the world? And like we said the past few weeks, this is a huge problem. Not an easy thing to solve. Last week was all about that, how there's no easy answer to this question. Yep. And today, we're not going to give an easy answer. And <laughs> we're going to try to hopefully give something of a robust answer, or hopefully a biblical answer, while recognizing that this is way above our pay grade. I mean, this is, it's just hard stuff. And, mm-hmm. uh, you know, just even thinking about this, it's just like, man, we, even our conversations, Paul, it's just like, where do you even begin? I mean, we, we define the problem. Mm-hmm. We try to look at some ways that are too simplistic. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> but I, well, something that helps me understand, or not understand, but deal with the problem of evil is that, Oddly enough, the Bible doesn't really deal with it. Yeah. Or, or I mean, it deals it, with it, but it doesn't give an answer. Like, it doesn't give an answer. answer. It doesn't yeah. say why. It doesn't, right. the Bible does not tell us where evil came from. Mm-hmm. Uh, it doesn't tell us, you know, God's exact relationship to it. I mean, it tells us that God's not the author of evil. God mm-hmm. never sins. God is unchanging in his goodness. But it doesn't really work it out like a math equation. Right. And, I think a lot of a lot of this conversation goes back to to if we are to how we let scripture inform even the questions we ask. You look at Job, and it's clear that the Old Testament authors got it. They're like, yeah, you can't reduce everything to you sin, therefore you suffer. Right. You can't reduce God to a vending machine. There are things that He does that you just do not understand, and He's mm-hmm. still good, but it recognizes that tension. Um, That's why we have Proverbs and Ecclesiastes. Proverbs shows us generally, if you wanna live a good life, do these things. Ecclesiastes says, well, even if you do these things, you're still gonna die, and there's a, a, you're never gonna find full satisfaction in this life. And both of those are true. Mm -hmm. And the fact that the Bible recognizes that tension and doesn't solve it means that we're not supposed to solve it, right? that we don't need to know the origin of evil exactly, that we don't need to uh, be able to solve the problem of evil. It doesn't mean it's not important to think about it. <clears throat> we need people thinking about it. Mm-hmm. But it should release us from thinking that we can't move forward as a Christian or even flourish as a Christian until we know the answer why. Yeah. And I think for a lot of us, not enough for all, I mean, for, for all of us, the answer that we think we need is not the answer that we need. <laughs> so I'm thinking like <laughs> Batman's not the hero that Gotham I know. <laughs> deserves. It's the one it's not, not the, the one that needs, need. one deserves. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that kind of like, and we, we mentioned this in a couple podcasts ago. The answer to why this happened to me is not going to provide the relief that I think it's going to provide. Just knowing, like if, if someone were to map out with an like you pull up a huge whiteboard and you draw out all the connections of, you know, this thing happened for this reason, blah, 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 it was caused in this way and it produced this result. And that's not gonna like, it might provide some comfort, but it's not gonna ultimately give me that kind of ease and relief and peace that's gonna help me deal with my suffering. So the asking of like, why did this happen is not a like, what's the cause or what's the purpose of this? But it, it is more of just like a cry for help, a cry for like, 
somebody help me get through this horrible thing that's you know, right. happened to me. And so ultimately the, the problem of evil is not an intellectual one, although there is an intellectual version, it's an existential problem. And it's one that, you know, is more like the cry for help than the cry for an explanation. And that's what we're trying to, you know. And that seems to be what the Bible focuses more on. Yeah, I think than so. Than the logical problem of evil. Right, right. And that's kind of what we want to focus on a little bit today. Yeah. And at the risk of sounding, you know, I mean, it, it's fine. It's a Sunday school answer, but it's true. What's one of the great resources we have to grappling with evil? Jesus. Jesus. <laughs> yeah. But open that up a little bit. Yeah. I mean, I, we've talked about how the problem of evil is a problem for all faiths for, you know, anyone who thinks that there's a good God, powerful, all-knowing. Christianity offers a unique resource um, that, you know, Islam doesn't have, that Judaism doesn't have, that none of the other um, theistic traditions has in that, think of it like this. You've got this ultimate storyteller, this creator, right? Think of, you know, J.K. Rowling or J.R. Tolkien or Lewis, some of these people that we talk a lot about. They write their stories, and in their stories, they've got good guys, they've got bad guys, they've got joy, they've got tragedy, <clears throat> but the author is aloof and removed from that story. The author writes that story and demonstrates a point, or it gives a certain arc, and the story is beautiful, but the story, but the author is, is still outside the picture, and so still kind of hands off. In Christianity, and this is where you see the uniqueness of the Christian story from the other religious traditions, in Christianity, the author writes himself into the story. And now at first glance, that doesn't seem like, okay, well, like, how's that going to help us with the problem of evil? It actually is like, it's massive. You've got the author of the story who writes the story in a way that it's not all just happy clappy. It's real and gritty and broken and has tragedy and sadness and, and really, really terrible stuff. But the author is not aloof from that. Like Tolkien, he's writing the story. Frodo's going through all this like suffering and he's on this quest to go destroy the ring. But Tolkien's in his like house in Oxford, like smoking a pipe. And he's just, you know, having the time of his life. In Christianity, God writes the story of creation and then writes himself into the story in a tiny little village in Bethlehem in the reign of the Roman Empire in a small backwater and like growing up in a peasant family, uh, rejected by his own people, betrayed, ultimately like experiences every single like tragedy and, and, and horrible life experience that, that you can go through at that time and literally feels the depths of human suffering and dies a horrible death and is not exempt from the horrible tragedies that humans are accustomed to and that, that regularly experience in the course of their lives, that God doesn't just write that story. He writes himself into the tragedy and takes the brunt of that tragedy upon himself. And so that God is not the aloof God, is the God who suffers with us, who knows what it's like to be poor, who knows what it's like to be naked, closed, hungry, rejected by his own people, and ultimately to be tortured and to die for those who rejected him, right? And so that kind of picture, once you look at it like that, it turns everything on its head. Even though Christianity doesn't give us that nice, 
a neat and tidy answer in the formulaic sort of way that we were talking about, it does give us this kind of existentially comforting response that this God who's at the helm of the ship, who's steering the story, who's writing the arc of the narrative, he is suffering with us. He's not just aloof. He's not just in an ivory tower. He's not just Tolkien sitting in his, you know, wingback chair in Oxford. He's suffering with us and he knows what it's like. And so that God is a God who can empathize and feel with us. And he's that high priest who suffers with us and who has experienced all the different kinds of temptations like we do. That's huge. That's hugely um, existentially powerful and comforting. And I, I, I can tell even just in my own life, my own experiences, that is hugely important and has like been a huge bolster to my faith in, in lots of times. And yeah, it, it doesn't give that propositional answer to the problem of evil, but it does give like that existential answer. It's a relational answer. Absolutely, yeah. And you think about it, you know, Jesus reveals the Father. He says, if you see me, you've seen the Father. Mm -hmm. And what he means by that is in the when you we see Jesus and we see how the Father treats him and we go, this is what God is like. Yeah. And what's fascinating is in the incarnation, God and man unite and the Father, the Father's Son mm -hmm. is a man, yeah. is a human being. That's his Son. And all the love a Father has is towards this human mm -hmm. who's also God. But that shows God's love for humanity, that he would send his own Son to take on flesh. Yeah. So it's not just that Jesus is the nice member of the Trinity and God's the Father's aloof. No, mm. the Father gets involved. Absolutely. And the Father fathers this human man. Mm. You know, and uh, the eternal son is sent by the father to redeem mankind. And what does he do? He gives his spirit to dwell in us. Mm. God dwells in us. Yeah. And so you see that God makes the initial step to unite mankind to himself, uh, to take pity upon us. So we know God's attitude towards us because the father sent his son to be a man. The son willingly gave up his life, humbled himself to be a man. And the spirit dwells with man, dwells mm. in us. The whole trinity wants to be united to us, wants to bring us into a relationship with him. Mm. And that sounds so abstract, but that's the goal. Like what we need is not an answer. We need to be united to God. Yeah. Right? And you think about Job. Job goes through this immense suffering. And, the, and he doesn't get an answer. Wait, his answer is God being like, I'm God. <laughs> Where were you? How can you question me? You don't get to question me. Mm -hmm. But what Job wants through all of his complaining and, and, and lamenting, it's interesting. He's actually not asking why it happened. Yeah, that's right. He's saying, I want an audience with God. Yeah. He uh, wants that relational aspect. I want to see God. Yeah. I want to talk to God. Mm -hmm. And you know what's amazing? God honors his request. That's right. We, we often think, oh, God's kind of mean. He's saying, God showed up mm -hmm. in a whirlwind. And he talked to Job. And I think that there is something about that where God goes, the suffering, it's not about why. It's mm -hmm. about who am I? That's right. And I'm coming face to face with you. And in the incarnation, that's that's God putting on flesh. That's yeah. the ultimate vision of that. It's a fuller expression of the Job experience. Yeah. It's like how much does God love us? He becomes one of us. Mm -hmm. And experiences life in this fallen world. Yeah. And... Uh, you know, what's fascinating is we can <laughs> shut ourselves off from the suffering of the world because of our sin. We can just ignore it, justify it away. Jesus didn't have that. Mm. He, he saw the suffering of the world because he is perfect. Yeah. He, he 
was angry at poverty and he was angry at you know immorality he was angry at the sexual morality he was angry at all the the the, the evil that he saw in the world and he couldn't be ignorant or blind to it like we can because of our fallenness mm-hmm. so it actually was he had a greater experience of evil yeah. to the fullest extent you know yeah. it's kind of like the thing where uh the person who knows temptation the most is a person who resists it right the person just gives in doesn't really feel temptation right. he just gives into it and it's yeah, over yeah. But the person who's battling it feels the weight of that battle and i think it's a similar reality with evil with jesus he he gets it god gets it jesus is god he's not god's angel he is god the god of the universe uh has identified us in such a permanent way in the incarnation hmm. that we can go oh god isn't just sort of throwing lightning bolts at us like zeus mm-hmm. right he comes in clothed in humility and you know that is powerful but he doesn't just die i mean he, he's raised he's going to rule and and there's a glory to it but mm-hmm. you know just the humanness of jesus is so powerful yeah and it really is it uncovers i think what i i think is is the most important lesson that we can draw from all of this is that god is calling us to trust in his goodness and we have good grounds to trust god's goodness because of what we see in the incarnation so we can get to the point, hopefully, we can say, I don't know all of the answers, but I trust the character and nature of God so much that even despite not knowing why or how or where this ship is heading, well, I mean, we do know where the ship is heading. We know that all will be made right eventually, but we don't know all the details. Things are foggy and messy and broken, and we don't know, you know, at times it almost feels like, you know, God, is there really a point to the story? And I think the incarnation gives us that full, you know, unveiling of God's character, his, his, his pure goodness that we can say in the same way, like, I don't know, you know, what you're planning. I don't know why you're letting this happen, but I can see your goodness so clearly that I, I can trust that you do have this under control, that you do have, you know, you are the good author of the story that you're sovereign, you're in control and you're good. And that combination is, is reassuring. Not only is God sovereign, right? Cause you can be sovereign. You could be a dictator. On the other hand, you can be really good, but you can be like just that super nice, uh, you know, friendly grandfather figure. God is neither of those two components alone. God is totally in control, totally powerful and totally good as revealed by the incarnation. And that combination is a really hopeful one. And that really can motivate and, and, and give life to faith and trust. And so I think in the absence of that propositional explanational answer, we can trust that relational aspect. I, I think with that relational aspect too, the humanness of Jesus Sometimes we can think about, you know, uh, at least I, I catch myself going like this. When you see Jesus suffering, you're like, yeah, but it was easy for him. He was God. Yeah. He just sort of floated through every challenge. But when you read the Gospels, mm-hmm. it wasn't easy for him. Yeah, yeah. Um, and the Garden of Gethsemane shows that, right? Uh, when Jesus knows he's going to Jerusalem to be crucified, mm-hmm. he stays up all night. And he's sweating blood and weeping mm-hmm. and praying. 
and even says to God, let this cup pass, the cup of my suffering, you know, mm-hmm. if there's any way, I'd rather not suffer, yeah. but your will be done. I want you to think about this though. This is the perfect son of God, perfectly righteous. He knows the resurrection's coming. He mm-hmm. knows, he knows why, yeah. right? He knows why this is happening. But there's the humanness there where he, he still weeps. It still hurts. Yeah. That shows us a couple things. One, why doesn't solve the problem? Exactly. There's an experiential reality to pain that why can't solve. Mm-hmm. So it lets us, uh, like we don't need to know why. Two, it shows that to be a human being is to feel the weight of suffering. Not to band-aid it, but it's, it hurts because it's bad. Yeah. And that trusting God isn't this sort of like morphine drip of like, oh, now I feel better. <laughs> what you see in the incarnation here in the garden is that he knows a truth. Yeah. It's going to work out. Mm-hmm. All things are going to work for good. The Father is good, all that stuff. He doesn't deny God. Jesus doesn't become an atheist. But he also doesn't become naive and just like everything's mm-hmm. fine. It 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 has a physical manifestation of anxiety, fear, and turmoil in his soul. That's not sinful. Mm. That means that you can be a faithful Christian, the perfect Christian man, Jesus is, mm-hmm. and still experience that kind of darkness. That's right. And that's not sin. Mm. And you're not doing something wrong. And that our bodily, ex- and this is, there's a great book called The Logic of the Body where he makes this point. His name's Matthew Lapine, great book, pick it up. And uh, he talks about how, you know, it's not like, oh, God's sovereign, he's good. Therefore, now my body, like now I just don't feel anxious about anything. Hmm. But that you can know a truth, believe that to be true, and yet experience it still yeah. as painful. Yeah, yeah. That's so important. That means that when hard stuff happens, you shouldn't feel guilty that the idea that all things work together, that it's a trial for your good, doesn't make you feel comfortable. Mm-hmm. That doesn't mean you're lacking faith. Right, because Jesus, and even even saying God, if there's another way, Jesus knows there's no other way. Mm. But it's okay for him to say that. Mm. It's okay for him to feel that. That's so important. So it, it, it lets us off the hook. We don't need to know why to endure. And two, we don't have to endure in some kind of detached, inhuman way where we're just fine. That pain, sorrow, tears, to the point of sweating blood, is an acceptable way for a Christian. To endure suffering. Absolutely. And it all points to, I forget who said this, but that's always a great way to preface a quote, (laughs) Um, that all of the suffering that we experience remind us that we, I think it was Lewis who said this, which wouldn't surprise me, that we are citizens of another world, right? Like like there's, there's something broken about the world and we feel that and we sit in it and we kind of like sit in this in between, like we know that God has started this reconciliation process to restore all of creation. We know that that work began in the incarnation. We're kind of sitting in this weird in between, between what God started and what God's going to finish in the new creation. Um, but when we look at that suffering and we experience that suffering in our lives, we're reminded that this is not the way the world is supposed to be. And God has begun rectifying that and the solution is going to look marvelous right paul talks about no eye has seen no ear has heard we haven't conceived of how great that new 
way of life is going to be. And <clears throat> there's a kind of like, yeah, like, like feel, feel that suffering, feel that pain and <clears throat> sit in it and let it remind you of both like humanity, mortality, and that things are not right. The world is not supposed to be this way. And look forward to the reckoning, the rectifying of all things where, um, God will wipe away every tear while there would be no more suffering, no more cancer, no more natural disasters. Everything is going to be the way it ought to be. And I think like that sort of uh, longing is, you know, Lewis talks about how God uh, whispers in our uh, pleasures and shouts in our pains. And, and so this kind of like God is reminding us constantly that this is not our final destination. And so it is temporary, it's painful, it's transient, but there is something better to come. And, and sitting in that tension between already and not yet is, I think, another helpful reminder that this discussion has brought to light. You know, <clears throat> I'm always haunted by Matthew 27. This is Matthew 27, 42. Mm -hmm. This is when Jesus is crucified and the people around him and they say, he saved others, but he cannot save himself. Yeah. He is the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross and we will believe in him. And you can imagine sitting there going, Jesus, yeah, if you did that, yeah. you'd have a revival. Yeah. I mean, you're you're healing people. You're casting demons into pigs. You're healing this crazy guy who lives in the in this rock cave. And and you you know, you cast out these demons for this this epileptic boy. You you save you know, all this stuff. You're doing these amazing things. Mm -hmm. Why are you crucified? And I mean, you can't even begin to unpack that where it's just like, what if it's not about that? Hmm. What if it's not about everything just working out in this life? Yeah. Right? Um, and that you think now you're just like, man, I mean, if God could just heal these people, then we'd have, we, 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 that's just the way we think it would happen. Mm -hmm. And, but it's like right there in the gospels, there's that weird thing where it's like, why is this guy the Messiah? Hmm. Why are you going to get killed by your enemies? Mm -hmm. Like, what the heck is happening? And yet, that's the wisdom of God that's foolishness to the world. Why would the crucifixion of this carpenter be the great deliverance? Mm. And uh, I have this great quote by, guess who? Carl Truman. <laughs> he says, the answer to the problem of evil does not lie in trying to establish its point of origin. For that is simply not revealed to us. Rather, in the moment of the cross, it becomes clear that evil is utterly subverted for good. If God can take the greatest of evils and turn them for the greatest of goods, then how much more can he take the lesser evils which litter human history from individual tragedies to international disasters and turn them to his good purpose as well? And that's the faith that we have to have. That a crucified Messiah is the salvation of the world. That crucifixion leads to resurrection. That's That takes complete faith in the trustworthiness of God's character, mm -hmm. despite everything that you see. Absolutely. And there's a part of us that's in that crowd going, <clears throat> wait, wait a minute, if, if you're... If you're the king of Israel, you, you saved others, you can't save yourself. And I love that. I mean, I, I'm just still meditating on that. It's just like, God, you you could just, you know, we're praying for all these things. If you just did this in our city, then everyone would believe, like, what's going on? Where's this power? And there's this cross-section where it goes, yeah, I get it. I'm doing all these amazing miracles, 
but I'm also letting myself be crucified. Mm. And somewhere in that tension is what's meant to challenge us to think about, okay, how do we view ourselves as Christians? How do we view suffering in our lives? And I think Spurgeon said the, the, the most amazing thing that Jesus did is he stayed on the cross. Yeah. You know? Wow. Um, <laughs> and it was agonizing. It was excruciating, but he trusted the Father. Yeah. Right? What did he say? My will is to do the work of the Father. I'm going to obey him to the point of death. What does Philippians 2 tell us? Because of that, he was exalted. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's the beauty too, where <clears throat> God does not count our suffering as cheap. Right. And that when we look at Jesus, we can go, well, I'm suffering unjustly. I'm suffering hard things. But Jesus did too. And he was the perfect man. And the Father loves him eternally as his own. And he is God himself. So it can't be that one, God is not aware of the problem of suffering. Yeah, And it can't be that the father abandoned me because he didn't abandon his son. Mm -hmm. And it's just that God gets it. Yeah, And because he gets it, we don't have to understand it. We can see what God is like and we can see that the absence of, we, we, we can see that, that if it happened to Jesus and Jesus was loved by God it, and it happens to me, it doesn't mean God doesn't love me. Right. Mm-hmm. You know? And <clears throat> just the fact that Jesus presents to us what a human being who is faithful to God looks like in the middle of suffering is so helpful. I mean, once, once you begin thinking of it like this, it really is a paradigm shift. It, it changes the kinds of questions. It changes the way that you look at God's involvement. It changes your the way you were previously doing the tallying and the calculations of there was sin here, then that led to suffering, or you know, bad people, bad suffering, and yeah, the, the cross subverts all of that. the The story of the incarnation subverts the order of you know creature creator. Like God comes into our story and feels all of it, and yeah, like I, I mean, even as you're saying that, I just, I'm hugely encouraged and I'm reminded that God's goodness is revealed to us in God giving us himself and not just giving right. us an answer, not giving us a message, but literally gifting himself to us. And, and that is, that's huge. I want to look at Romans 8 and Paul writes about this all the time and Peter writes about this, but Romans eight seventeen says, if we're children, then we are heirs of God's glory. But if we are to share in his glory, we must also share in his suffering. Mm-hmm. And Paul talks about, you know, I want to share in the sufferings of Christ that I may know the resurrection. In yeah. 1 Peter 4, 13, rejoice that you share in the sufferings of Christ so when his glory is revealed, you may also be glad with exceeding joy. And it's this connection, you are in Christ. Christ's story is your story. So the humiliation and suffering of Christ will be your story, mm-hmm. but also the glory of Christ. Yeah. But if you want to identify with Christ, you will identify in his glory but you also identify in his sorrow, right. but they work together. And I think that that's important where it's like, you know, if you want to really know Jesus, there's a fellowship he offers when you suffer like him that makes the glory that he received enticing, if that makes sense. Hmm. You almost have to know what it's like to be among the downtrodden to suffer like he did mm-hmm. and we'll never suffer like he did yeah. but 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 to but to to 
walk like Christ in this world will cost you something. But in feeling that cost, you will realize, oh man, but the glory that he promises is worth it. And it's almost like you got to do it before that becomes a reality. Mm -hmm. And, you know, that's, that's difficult. That's difficult. And it's just like, I, I don't even know how to explain it. It's, I, I've been very, I've been suffered a lot really in this life. You know, I've, I've had it pretty good. And so I'm, you know, and I don't think we should meaninglessly look for suffering. But I think that we should be disrupted a little bit by how much of our wrangling with the question of evil is us not recognizing what Jesus lived through. Yeah. And what he calls yeah. us to, you know? And um, also, I just think about the compassion of Jesus, where he saw the suffering of other people, and it, and he allowed himself to be affected by it. Even when he looks over Jerusalem and says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, I would have gathered you like a mother hen, and mm -hmm. you keep turning away from me. There's a deep compassion that he has. And all of these things really force us to ask, you know, where is our hope? What are we really living for? And the fact that Jesus didn't shy away from the experience of suffering, the emotional experience of it, and you'll see this in the Psalms too, I think it helps us um, accept that it's painful and feel it without having to necessarily fix it all. You know, um, sometimes we say things like, well, you know, in suffering, that's when you get closest to God. Uh, <laughs> it's like, yes, but what do you mean by that? I love, uh, C.S. Lewis wrote A Grief Observed, which was his last book. Mm -hmm. It's a bunch of journal entries after the death of his wife. And one of the passages he says, why is God so, uh, pre why is God so present in our joys, but so absent in our pains? Hmm. <laughs> and it's kind of a flip on what he says in the problem of pain, you know, God uh, shouts in our pain. Yeah. It's to raise it's a it's megaphone to rouse a, a, a sleeping world. Both are true, but mm -hmm. I love the more mature reflection where it's like, no, when you're suffering, actually it feels like God. And, and actually Lewis talks about when you pray to God, when you're suffering, you run up to a door and you hear the lock <laughs> latch go, <laughs> you know, and, and it's just like, you're locked out of God. I felt that. I yeah. think a lot of people feel that. And sometimes the try, like you'll get closer to God. It's like, I don't feel that at all. Mm. I'm suffering. <clears throat> it's horrible. And I actually think Jesus in Gethsemane and, and the psalmist, the closeness to God isn't this euphoric feeling necessarily. And sometimes it takes time. Mm -hmm. It's not like, uh, oh, I'm close to God. Therefore, the presence of God, therefore, nothing bothers me. I, you know, you don't want the presence of God to numb you to real suffering. Yeah. You don't want to be like, oh, all these kids are starving. Ah, but I had a quiet time and now I don't worry about them anymore. Mm. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah. And uh, sometimes I wonder if we're kind of too therapeutic with that. Mm. And when Jesus is in the presence of the Father praying, and he's in agony because what he's facing really is daunting. Mm -hmm. And so I want to avoid, you know, sort of like a maybe a naive view of communion with God. Sure, yeah. Um, certainly there's joy, <clears throat> but 
I guess I'm just saying we don't, we're not always supposed to be happy. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I mean, and then the fact that we're not isn't a failure. Hmm. It could mean that we're just functioning properly. It could mean we're functioning properly. Yeah. It could mean we're like Jesus who yeah. was, who's weeping over Jerusalem. Mm -hmm. Or the prophets. Weeping over Lazarus. Yeah. The, the prophets who are yeah. angry over sin. That's right. Um, sometimes we should really be bothered. Oh, yeah. And I don't want... We, we and sometimes the, the the simplistic reactions to suffering are self-preservation in a selfish way. Selfish mm -hmm. way, and uh, yeah, a lot of lot of thoughts. But uh, we're gonna keep continuing this series. Hopefully, this has been helpful to you. Uh, please leave a comment, leave a review, let us know what you think, and share this with your friends. We will see you guys next week.